Welcome to episode 10 of Military Veterans Podcast, where we talk to veterans to learn about their stories and experiences. And today we're joined by Mark Elliott. Hey, Mark. Hi there. How are you doing? Very well, Gav. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, as I just said, 10, 10 episodes. We've hit double figures. Well, it's remarkable. I think what you're doing is, uh, is extraordinary. Uh, and uh, hats off to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Even though I'm the one wearing the hat. Indoor, so. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show, Mark. Um, and I'm really excited to see where this episode goes and, and just to hear what you've been through during your, your career. So as previous episodes, um, we do have the four questions. So I'm going to read those out. Uh, if you could just bullet point answer them and sure. then we'll dive into the deep stuff. Okay. So those four questions are... When did you join? What service and branch did you join? How long did you serve for? And what rank did you get to? Now I've got to remember all those four questions, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, it. thanks for that. And at my age. Um, so, no, I joined in uh, January. I think it was the 5th of January 1978 uh, as a 16-year-old. Uh, I joined the Grenadier Guards. Uh, I served for 25 years not including the first year and a half. Okay. Um, because that didn't count as service, apparently. Uh, and I left as a warrant officer class one. Brilliant stuff. And, and just to clarify for overseas people, that is in the British Army, isn't it? That is the British Army. Yeah. There are no other Grenadier Guards. <laughs> just clarifying, because you never know who's listening. Well, technically, there are the Canadian Grenadiers, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> um, brilliant. I'm, I'm really, like I said before, looking forward to where this goes. I'm also just going to say sorry to start with because I've got a squeaky chair. You have. So that's because you're in the tin hut. <laughs> and we are. We'll hopefully cover that near the end yeah, so sure. everybody knows where we are actually. Um, so let's go, let's go to the beginning. So where, where was you born and where did you grow up? Well, I was born in uh, Dorking uh, in Surrey um, and grew up in Surrey, Sussex, Kent. And I guess as far as uh, analogies go or, or the history of Mark Elliott, everything was going swimmingly well until my parents decided to divorce. Um, so going from a, a fairly middle class, a, an okay um, family life, um, to not such a good family life, uh, and my mother and I uh, living in pretty bad conditions uh, in Kent, um, I wasn't particularly uh, bright at school. Um, I think intelligence is, is the word. Right. Um, I didn't really understand it and why I needed to know this stuff, and, and pretty much that's followed me through my life. Okay. I okay. get very frustrated. Um, but, uh, yeah, I landed up uh, walking around uh, the streets of, of Tunbridge Wells uh, and accidentally walked into a recruiting office. Okay, okay. Well, uh, before we jump into that, uh, in regards to school, you mentioned uh, not so good at it, but did you enjoy school or was that like a difficult time? Um, no, uh, is the simple answer. Yeah. Uh, I was unfortunate enough, I guess, um, to get taught stuff that I really didn't think I needed to know. Okay. Uh, I've, I've never used Latin Right, right. Uh, I, I really haven't. Uh, I can't think, <laughs> apart from being able to quote Pythagoras' theorem, yeah. uh, I've never really used it. 
Um, and that frustrated me. Okay. Um, okay. I was very fortunate, um, and I should mention them, and that is the Buttle Trust. Um, so my education was not going well, and there was a wonderful trust who looked after disadvantaged children uh, to give them a better education. Uh, so the Buttle Trust paid for me to go to a, a nice school, a prep school uh, in Eastbourne. Okay. Uh, and then to go to public school. So I landed up with a far better education, uh, thanks to the Buttle Trust and charity, um, than I would have otherwise got. Um, and I think it's fair to say um, that at 15, 16, um, if it hadn't been for them and possibly the British Army, uh, I would have landed up either in Borstal or prison. Right. Along with many 16-year-olds <laughs> of that time. And um, so what, what was the kind of like education back then? Because I'm, I'm guessing that's the 70s. Right? Yeah, I mean, let's not get carried away. You know, this isn't Dickens, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, when you say the education, but we weren't whipped to death <laughs> uh, and shoved up chimneys. Um it was just a very different education right. then of of what it is now, and I see with my daughter and indeed granddaughter. Yeah, uh, and it's something that I I struggled with. It, yeah. it was um, good effort, um, but really not going anywhere. Okay, uh, is fair, but sport, outdoor stuff, um, captain of football teams, rugby teams. Um, that's where I understood right, um, right. education. Um, sitting doing a mower mass a mass uh, <laughs> is not a good thing, according no, no. to me. Uh, and that's pretty much carried on throughout my life. Brilliant. So you mentioned you were walking down the, the high street and, and you decided to pop in to the yeah, career's I, office? Yeah, I, um, I had left school at, at 16. Okay. Um, I had decided um, that enough was enough of this pain. Uh, there was pointless wasting anybody's time with A-levels and... Um, university in those days was really set for the top 5% of the country. Okay. Uh, and if I'm honest, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The rest of us need to get on with our lives and get a job. Right. Um, controversial. Um, so I left school. Uh, I worked as a, as a hospital porter at 16. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, well, it wasn't great. We wheeling bodies from... Um, the surgery to the morgue um, in Pembury Hospital, um, and to go there you had to go outside. Right. So trolleys from surgery to the morgue. Okay. Um, and then I worked in a hotel, um, and then I walked past a recruiting office. Uh, clearly had too much to drink at lunchtime. <laughs> uh, walked into a recruiting office, um, and this huge beast um, said, "You know what? Oh well, I'm going to join the army." And there was a picture of a guardsman, although clearly I had no idea what the guardsman was. And he said, you're tall. Uh, clearly the only caveat for, for joining the guards. Um, and that is the story. And that is it. Uh, no thought of joining the military, no... Not prior to that? No, absolutely. No? Why on earth would you want to do that? <laughs> um, my father did national service. Okay. Um, but apart from that, he left pretty much as quick as he could, I should think. Uh, so God knows where it came. You don't know where it came from? Absolutely no. no idea. And how tall were you back then? Well, I was still pretty <laughs> tall. I haven't shrunk. We're back on the age thing here, aren't we? Oh, uh, so what are you, six two, six three? Uh, yeah, I get well. Like I, I, I'm guessing, uh, as we all know, 
uh, you know, in, certainly in those days, the recruiting sergeants given you need to recruit so many for this. I could have walked in on, on a day and he said, good God, you look like a Royal Engineer. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it could have been anything. Yeah. It could have been worse. It could have said, you know, Queen's Fair. Regiment or Engineer or something like that. <laughs> So in the end, thankfully, they were recruiting for Grenadier Guards. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the Royal Engineers is the best, hence why, hence why I'm here. <laughs> it's your podcast. You go with it. Fantastic. So uh, you walked in. They said, hey, you look like a Grenadier Guard uh, or a guard at all. Yep. Um, so you decided to, to sign on the dotted line um, or did you just get information and then think about it? Was it very quick no, no, to get in there? No, no, in those days, I mean, you know, it wasn't the queen shilling and the truncheon over the back of the head, but um, it, it was fairly quick. I, I went home uh, and said to my mother, I've joined the British Army, and she went, well, that's lovely, dear. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I presume, you know, Royal Engineers or a Corps and get yourself a trade, um, to which there was a bit of a pause <laughs> uh, that I'd just enlisted into the Grenadier Guards, not really knowing what that was, Um and I was going to stand still for a very long time. Okay, okay. So that didn't go terribly well. Right. Um, and then when, where, where was training for you uh, in Well, in it, because I was 16 and they decided I, uh, uh, I had leadership skills, um, how they managed to decide that, I have absolutely no Clearly idea. Clearly more numbers they needed. Right? <laughs> Clearly I got into the high bracket of being able to stand still. Um, so I was sent to the Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion uh, at Shawncliffe. Okay, okay. Um, for a year, that's where they sent us all. An extraordinary place. Um, you walked into a room, uh, all, all guardsmen. Right. Um, so Irish guards, Scots guards, Welsh guards. Uh, the Irish guards were all from Liverpool. Um, the Welsh guards have no idea where they came from because I couldn't understand a word. <laughs> Scots guards from the inner city of Glasgow and Edinburgh. And they put frankly you know 30 guys in a room at 16 where most of us should have been in Borstal law prison right um an extraordinary way of doing things and looking back on it um what they achieved was extraordinary um so yeah that that was kind of fun times uh, yeah if i'm honest uh you did um, education Okay. Uh, you learnt leadership skills, you did all the military training, um, and it was a very good background for young guys who, frankly, were going to get lost. Right, right. And how long was that for? That's a year. That's one yeah, year. Yeah. That's one year, yeah. okay. So that gets you to 17 before they can really kick you. Right, right. <laughs> and that's, uh, so 78 you joined. So correct? 78 uh, I went there. You then go, uh, in those days, to the Guards Depot Purbright. Okay. Um, and for, for me, there was a junior guardsman uh, entry, um, and they do a year at Purbright. God bless them. Uh, we came from junior leaders, and then for about four or five months, uh, you meet up um, at the guards' depot, uh, which, fr frankly, you suddenly realise you wish you had gone to prison or, or <laughs> Borstal or, or, frankly, anything. Why would uh, you say that? Oh, the guards' depot in the, those days was a horrendous place. Yeah. Um, it, it was, you know, nowadays, you know, it, it really would um, be against human rights. Oh, right. uh, I, I mean, it was extraordinary. It, it was, you didn't know it at those times, but, but it was an extraordinary amount of, of bullying. Okay. Um, 
But that's the way things were done. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not complaining. Uh, you know, going from the drill square and you're getting the, your foot wrong to running up and down a sand hill with a gas mask in two dress uh, and ammo boots and, until you faint is it, not a good plan now. Uh, but back then... But certainly it, it, it kind of worked and you yeah. got good at drill pretty quick. Um, yeah. So I'm not advocating that, um, <laughs> but I wouldn't suggest it's, it's done nowadays. No. Um, and then you, you pass out of the guard's depot, hopefully, and you go to your battalions. Um, now, I think the 2nd Battalion Grenadier Guards was in Hong Kong at the time. Um, various different Coldstream Guards, Welsh Guards, Irish Guards were all over the world. Unfortunately for me, or fortunately, um, I was posted to the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, was come, which was come out of the Guards Depot and turn right, and it's about 200 yards up the road at Elizabeth <laughs> Barracks. So I walked out of the Guards Depot um, with a... It wasn't even a rucksack. We didn't have rucksacks in those days. An army suitcase and walked into the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards about 500 metres up the road. Wow, okay. Um, and that's per bright. And that's perfect. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. It's even on the same camp. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. <laughs> so you get to see new recruits coming through whilst you're at your main unit. It, yeah, it's it's not good. That's crazy. Yeah. And and so, what's the kind of like welcome to your first unit like uh, back then? Yeah, it, it's not good. No. Um, so I was again because I was fairly tall, taller than the average guardsman. Um, you got sent, or I was, luckily enough, I, I was sent to the Queen's Company of the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards. Um, so I walked in um, to the Queen's Company. Okay. Uh, and that's where I served. So for people like me that don't doesn't know too much about uh, the Guards, so within 1st... Yeah, within the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, there's Her Majesty's Company, which is called the Queen's Company. Okay. Uh, and when Her Majesty dies, it will become the King's Company. Right. Um, and then there's separate companies within? Correct. Then well. you've got Taggy 2, Rubbish 3, <laughs> Support Company and Headquarter Company, which nobody cares about. Okay. Um, <laughs> but no, the, the Queen's Company, okay. um, not Queen's Company, the Queen's Company. Got uh, it. It is something very special to all of us. Yeah. And then what are you tasked to do as a guard? In well, the at company? that time, uh, we were on public duties. Um, so in those days, we actually got bus from Purbright up to Chelsea Barracks. Uh, and right. in those days, used to have a police escort okay. uh, into London uh, where we mounted guards. So you did Buckingham Palace, St. James's Palace, Tower of London, um, Royal Guards. And you then you also did Windsor Castle Guard. Wow. So you were um, one of those guys that stood there? Yes, for a very long time. Yeah. Um, but I was fortunate enough, the battalion then got posted in 1979 uh, to Berlin. Okay, okay. And we were sent uh, to Wavell Barracks uh, in Berlin, or West Berlin. Um, I have to remember, you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. But in those days, Berlin was sealed off. So you had East and West Berlin, East and West Germany. West Berlin uh, was completely surrounded by East Germany. So essentially, you had this little island uh, called West Berlin, surrounded by East German troops, Russian troops, right. uh, in East Germany. And you had to get there by corridors. 
So there was an air corridor, okay, uh, a train corridor, and a, and a single road. And we had infantry battalions out there, uh, tanks out there, artillery out there, with absolutely no idea what we would have done because we were already surrounded. Yeah, um, yeah. So we looked after Rudolf Hess uh, at Spandau Prison. Uh, we drank a huge amount. We became really? absolutely phenomenal at drinking. <laughs> um, and we did a lot of training. Uh, okay. We became very fit, very good, despite the drink, uh, and looked after Rudolf Hess. So I've been to places like Checkpoint Charlie. Correct. Um, you yeah. know, I've, I've, I've wandered the streets yeah. um, that it is now in the, in the 2010s. So back then... Was you just training, just being prepared, just in case uh, East Berlin came into West Berlin? Is that what you were doing? I think that would be what they would say we were doing. Yeah. But as I said, we were surrounded anywhere. We yeah. weren't going anywhere. I mean, the last thing they needed to do was, was invade West Berlin because it was already surrounded. Mm. We were cut up. All they needed to do was stop the road, stop the rail, stop the air. Yeah. Uh, and that was kind of it. Um, and and how, you, how, sorry, how did you feel being there? How did you feel doing all that, knowing what you were surrounded by? Because that must be intimidating. No, not, a, not, not at, at all. all. No. Uh, I mean, the whole of the West ploughed an extraordinary amount of money into, into West Berlin. Okay. Um, politically, they were trying to say, look at the West, isn't it wonderful? And you've got to remember that in East Berlin and East Germany at that time, poverty w was rife. It was an extraordinary. It was communist. Um, it was USSR, the Soviet Union. Uh, and they were chalk and cheese. Right. West Berlin, when I was there, um, looks a bit like West Berlin or Berlin now. Okay. But as soon as you crossed over Checkpoint Charlie, which we were allowed to do in, in two dress... Really? You, you went into East Berlin uh, and it was just like going back a couple of hundred years. Wow. I mean, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And we're back. Uh, we had a little break because somebody came to the Tin Hut to uh, drop off a donation, which was, which was very, very nice. Um, so we're back here, Mark. Um, where did we get to? Can you well, we got to uh, <laughs> West Berlin and the extraordinary place. Um, so you were surrounded. Um, so it, it was very much, it was far more of a political force um, than tactically and strategically as a military force being able to do anything. We could have been wiped out easily by the first echelon of the Russian army. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they wouldn't have even wasted bullets on it mm. um, because there was no need to. Um, they'd have gone to West Germany in those days the British Army of the Rhine, West Germany, w was massive. Okay. Uh, I mean, hundreds of thousands of troops. And, and that was the first line of defence. West Berlin w was a political pawn. Um, and to look after Rudolf Hess, but that's another story. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. And so how long was you stationed We there? were there for two and a half years. Two and a half years, um, okay. And then we flew back uh, to cavalry barracks in Hounslow. Right, right. Joy of joys. Okay. Um, so, and, sorry, before you came back to Hounslow, um, during that two and a half years, were you able to go on leave and, and head back yeah, to the UK? Yeah, yeah. You, like you went back to UK. I mean, I, I know this sounds bizarre, but when you took off from Teagle Airport, which was the Berlin airport, you, you flew out 
You then flew down to 25,000 feet. You flew out of a corridor. And once you got out of the corridor, you went to 30,000 feet. Wow. Uh, And sometimes flying in on a British Airways flight uh, into Berlin, uh, you'd be joined by MiG fighters. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who made sure you did not go off. No, no. I mean, there was literally a corridor from top to bottom. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Okay. So... Couple of uh, two and a half years there, or so you're back to as you say Hounslow. Um, so back to Hounslow, uh, back to public duties, uh, and back to Northern Ireland. Um, so my battalion, I missed the '79 tour. Um, I joined the battalion when they were in South Armagh, um, where sadly we we lost some guys, um, and we got back to Hounslow. That was public duties, but also operational tours. Um, so in 1980. Two, uh, I think it was. God, the memory's going. Uh, I landed up in, in Crossmaglen, South Armagh. Okay. Um, which is not a great place to be. No. Um, it, well, it certainly wasn't in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, very much sniper country, very unpleasant. We lived in what we call submarines, tiny rooms, hot bedding. Um, and in those days, the IRA, the provisional IRA, were, were extremely active. Right. He says politely. Okay, yeah. Um, so we we were in Hounslow, but emergency tours out, out to Northern Ireland. And how long were those tours typically? Well, I suppose for, for some of the advanced parties, it's probably not much different from uh, what the guys and girls did uh, later on. Um, the advanced parties and rear parties, it, it could be eight, nine months. Wow, uh, okay. I mean, they started off, they were meant to be four to six month tours, uh, but they were rarely four to six months. Yeah. Tours. Does anything from that stand out to you? Like a, uh, I think it experience? was the first time uh, that that you lost a guy, um, and and that hits you hard. I, I've never forgotten. He was a young lad, actually from the Devon and Dorset, okay, um, who was doing a patrol because one of our sections was on leave, uh, and you reinforced and helped each other out. Uh, and the RA uh, got him by a car bomb in the square of Cross McGlen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the smell of that, uh, you never forget. Yeah. Um, and the young lads who saw it. And I think the, the understanding there was nothing you could do. There was nothing. It didn't matter about your training. Um, the RA uh, watched him walk towards the car, um, and he realised... Um, that it was a bit low in the back, uh, and they detonated it. Mm. This was not a chance. This wasn't, you know, this was out-and-out murder. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, and you never forget those things. No. There's, there's moments, the smells. I think it's the smell uh, of, a, of a bomb. I, I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, rather than the sight of it. Mm. Um, but complete devastation. Um Bizarrely, everything was on camera. Uh, from they, there was a major sanger called Baruki Sanger in those days in Cross McGlen, and it was all on CCTV. Um, apart from the buggers who stopped, dropped the car off, and you've got to remember, Cross McGlen uh, was a village, uh, and people come and go, and you've got to operate in normal life. Yeah. You know, uh, there are people, you know, kids going to school, there are farmers coming in, there's people doing normal, and you've got to operate within that. Mm. So tough times. Yeah. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was my first tour 
across McGlen, South Armagh, lucky me. Okay. Uh, and bizarrely, uh, that's right up and for 20 years later. I, I spent, I think, probably about five years in total in South Armagh. I never went anywhere else. Um, I didn't even make any sunshine tours. I just spent my time in South Armagh. So <laughs> oh, right. I, I became quite expert at South Armagh. Okay. Uh, and actually, we'll talk about it later, but I landed up doing a three-year tour uh, in South Armagh, really? okay. which, which I loved. So you'd, you'd go out, you'd do a tour, you'd come back to, to Hounslow. Yeah, back to Hounslow. Um, uh, and, and then it was public duties, uh, training. Um, and in those days, um, it was about every two years, uh, then back out. And then back out. To South Armagh. Okay. Um, so, so in regards to public duties, um, you mentioned the, the palaces and, and the castles. So you're there to guard those. Yeah, you, you're doing front. normal ceremonial duties, as, as yeah. you see. You're doing trooping the colour, um, street lining, normal ceremonial duties. Okay. But you're also training. Okay. Um, so so for a guard that's actually yeah. stood there, did, did you have, you know, uh, tourists come and stand near you and have pictures? And yeah, I, I mean, all of that. All not, of that. Not so, luckily enough... Um, before I joined, they moved the guards from uh, the front of Buckingham Palace yeah. to, to inside to okay. stop that. But yeah. at, at Windsor Castle, no, the, the public would come up to you. Tower of London, they could come up to you. Jimmy's, they could come up to you. Um, and and what, is, what is it like for you as that guard stood there? Because from someone like me that, that wanders, that, that sees the tourists go and take pictures, tries to make you smile, etc., What's it like for you as the guard? What- well, that, that entirely depends on how good-looking she is. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that was entirely... If they weren't that good-looking, then, then you would stand to attention, make a noise and, and point your SLR with a bayonet on. Right. Um, it was entirely dependent on how good-looking they were. <laughs> um, so so, so uh, I think this is the first time I'm talking about this on, on the podcast. Um, my dad was in the Blues and Royals. Yeah. And... When I used to see him, he would tell me that uh, being stood at uh, Horse Guard Parade yeah. um, and his boot would be filled with numbers and he'd yeah. literally take off his boot and, and pour them out. Yeah. Uh, and I'm guessing that happened to you Yeah, as well. I mean, to, to a degree they, they would. But again, it was entirely on looks. <laughs> absolutely nothing else. Uh, I'd you... like to say, you know, it was security. and okay. But in those days, you, you didn't have that... Uh, terrorism right um, you know the provisional ira really hadn't started its london campaign okay in, in those days uh, that came later mm. um so uh, in those days it, it it never even crossed your mind really yeah, yeah. other than civilians are annoying i was gonna say did you find them annoying oh, ab- absolutely <laughs> and they, you know they all ask the same stupid questions and try and you know uh, Oh, he's real. He's not real. Will he smile? Won't he smile? Yeah. Just shut up. <laughs> Just very boring. So it entirely depended on how bored you were. Yeah, I was going to say that my next question was going to be: Was it boring for you guys, or, or did you have this kind of like amazing way of like switching off from where you were no, no, to certain you, things? No, there was no amazing way to switch off because you've no. got to remember we probably weren't that bright. We weren't engineers. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> I thought I would get it in before anybody else did. Uh, no, it, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it, it, depending on what post you were on, uh, depending on um, what guard you were on, 
Um, Buckingham Palace is exceptionally boring because there aren't any public near. You're just staring at these lunatics looking through the rail. Right, yeah. Um, Windsor Castle, it's a bit more fun. Uh, Jimmy's was okay, depending on which post you were. Mm. So the ones that were near the public was was far better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because there was something going on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean. Yeah. And what, what was you guys told by I don't know the sergeant major or someone? Did you have to make sure you always look straight? Was you was you not allowed to smile? Is that? Is oh, that what I, I, all of it. All I of mean, that, you yeah. know, ultimately, you know, it's it's about discipline, isn't it? Okay. Uh, you yeah. know, it, there was a lot of fun and jokes and whatever. But but for us, it was discipline. Mm. Um, and you you moved 15 paces to the right, 15 paces to the left, stand still for half an hour, do it again. Um, so it just is what it is. Yeah. Um, and then in regards to uh, Trooping the Colours for the, for the Queen's birthday. Trooping the Colour. Trooping the Colour yeah. uh, for the Queen's birthday. Um, I've, again, been there as a spectator. Um, but what's it like? Preparing for that because it, 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 it's, it's quite bloody hard work. Hard work. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we in the guards have a thing called spring drills, uh, where basically uh, sergeants and company sergeant majors and the sergeant major bounce us all around the square for weeks on end, um, preparing for what we call the summer season. Okay, uh, where you'll get um, royal visits, protocol visits, guards of honours, trooping the colour. Uh, and then, depending if you're on the troop, which guard you're on, if you're escort to the colour, uh, that's a big deal. Right. Um, and that involves different movements. But what you see on the telly of, of trooping the colour um, is very different doing it. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of shouting, trying to get a frontage uh, going in a straight line. Yeah. But again, you know, and I know veterans and serving will hear it, it's just a matter of discipline. Yeah. Um, you know, and all of those troopy of the colour um, are battle drills. Yeah, uh, yeah. They may be old battle drills, but they are essentially battle mm. drills. Um, and now, you know, we move into sections and, and whether it was Afghanistan, Iraq or whatever. But that's, that's what it was. Mm. Um, you know, and the colour uh, was the comms. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's how you found you didn't have somebody on the radio going all call signs this is zero um you know you troop the color that's where you were yeah um, and uh, that's what it's about it's very, very interesting to to hear from from your perspective uh so, so thanks for sharing yeah and uh i suppose you mentioned then going back out uh to northern Ireland, right yeah so uh the battalion then went back out uh 84 Five eighty six. Yeah, um, and what what rank are you at this point? Uh, have you done any courses, had, promotions? Well, bizarrely, i I had decided I quite like being a guardsman. You did. I, okay. I really quite liked it. Okay. I, I couldn't see the point uh, in being a non commissioned officer. Uh, they just got a lot of hassle. Whereas I could just get drunk in the naffy, and you know, <laughs> I was fine with that. I was encouraged. Uh, to go on my corporal's course, um, but I didn't want to leave the Queen's Company. By this time, I'd been in the Queen's Company uh, six, seven years as a yeah. guardsman. Yeah. Um, and I was having a whirl of a time um, until a guy, uh, a guy called Major Webb Carter, um, went on to be 
Major General Sir Evelyn Webb Carter. Uh, I still call him Major. Um, he locked me up until I would go on the corporal's course. He said <laughs> I was wasting time and, and I, I had potential, which I never thought I did. Uh, I have been married. I just got married. Okay. Um, so actually, so, you know, I think my wife, somebody said, well, where is he? And he said, well, he's in jail. He won't go on the corporal's course. <laughs> uh, always the awkward one. Um, so eventually I, I did the corporal's course. So okay. uh, I think I became a lance corporal in 1985 yeah 1985 and and then it took me i think it only took me about 10 years or 11 years to get to wo1 right Uh, that's really quick yeah (laughs) once i hit it but it was something that apart from drinking a lot in the naffy and and having a whale of a time quite Mm. frankly i was always determined to do everything as a as a guardsman, as a private soldier, as a sapper. I never wanted to to lead by a book. I wanted to lead, and people to say like he's done that. So I wanted to, I wanted to go to Ireland as as an operational tour as a guardsman, okay. uh, knowing full well that I would probably have to lead people on an operational tour. Um, and I wanted to know what that felt like. So when I made commands, orders going through my life, um, I knew what they were feeling because I'd done it. Um, so I pretty much did everything uh, right. as, as a guardsman. Um, and and I, I found that uh, hugely valuable as I went up the ranks okay. as, as opposed to join the battalion and just get promoted. Yeah. I've got great friends who, who did it that way and were incredible leaders. Um, it just wasn't something for me. It's not for you, but... It wasn't for me. No, I I, I want to look people in the eye and go, I've, I've done it, I've been there. Uh, and when I say we're doing it, I want you to know that. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the way I wanted to do it. Okay. Well, it worked for you because... Uh, yeah, it kind of worked you, for you me. Up- I, 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 I was never a military man. I mean, how I did 25 years, I just... <laughs> it's weird I, that someone like you to say that as well. You I, had a, I had a friend of mine um, who I met up with. I, I met, uh, we're sort of jumping around, but I, I did various jobs uh, and landed back in South Armagh, um, serving with a load of chippy officers and, and engineer people and weirdos. Um <laughs> But he was a major uh, light infantry, one of the finest, actually, officers that I ever served with. Anyway, we met up. Uh, he, he left as a brigadier uh, and moved to Australia. But we, we met up and, and I was saying, look, I, I just don't... And he said, well, Mark, even in those days, we could always rely on you to ask the awkward question. <laughs> and, and I just would. It didn't matter to me whether, you know, it was a brigadier, a general or major, you go... What are we doing? Yeah. Uh, and so it was never, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags. I love the military. It's all great. Mm. I, I was never that person. I, I, I did it. I could do it. I appeared to be pretty good at it. Um, but I was always going to ask that question, even for a guardsman. Yeah, that's uh, good. Uh, and go, well, it wasn't at the time. No? Um, okay. But, but actually, you go, what, what, why are we doing that? Yeah. Because um, that happens a lot in in this time in this era. That yeah, we're in yeah, it, it, you know. it wasn't a, it wasn't a good career move 
in, in the then. 80s. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't. But uh, I guess at that time, uh, later on, I, I moved into the admin side of, of, of the army, still serving with my battalion. Um, so I joined my battalion uh, and, and never left my battalion for 18 years. Right, right, okay. Uh, and we grew up. Um, so mates I joined with at, at, at 18 or, you know, the battalion at 17. Uh, we went right through the ranks. Okay. Um, and some filtered out and some went as guardsmen yeah. and corporals. Um, but, yeah, some of us got, got right up at, and other great mates uh, went on to be commissioned, which, which is a wonderful thing. So you mentioned uh, 85-ish, you were heading back out to Northern Ireland. You also touched on a three-year posting. Yeah, well, or, or we, um, so the battalion did that. Then we got posted uh, out to Munster. Uh, oh, right. In, in Germany. Okay. What year uh, was that? That was 86, 87. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in 87, we were the first battalion ever to, ever to receive this new vehicle called the Warrior. <laughs> yeah, now okay. you're laughing, okay. aren't you? No, I'm really showing my age. So the first battalion, Grenadier Guards, were the first battalion to receive this new fighting vehicle. Um, very exciting. Mm. Chain guns, 30 mil cans, the whole lot. Um, it was an utter crock when it first arrived. Really? Oh, I mean, okay. it was horrendous. The chain gun exploded. Um, the hydraulic doors was closed by the driver who had no idea whether anybody was getting in or out. And once the hydraulics on the door started, you couldn't stop them. Crap. Correct. <laughs> um, when you were, you'll know how important this, when you were trying to make a, a brew... Um, you obviously had the BV. Mm. Well, when the door closed, you couldn't get your black mug under the boom. Oh. So uh, the fuel tank, which was inside where we were, the section, the fighting section, was see-through. So when you're going cross-country, all this fuel's doing this. So we were all throwing up in the back with seasickness. No uh, I mean, it was extraordinary. No I just way. couldn't. Uh, there was one day we were on Hona Ranges and the chain gun, you know, just were, uh, we said, not firing. A wonderful major uh, went on to become a friend, said, I'm not firing. Uh, was ordered to carry on fighting. No. I've never seen so many civil servants and Germans, uh, sorry, and generals turn up on Hona Ranges um, because, of course, we were stopped firing saying these guns are unsafe. And that's not how British Army contracts work. <laughs> that's, that's not the right answer. No. It does work. No, no, when you get in and fire it yeah. then, because we were having breach explosions. Um, yeah, the proverbial shit hit the fan, yeah. but wonderful times. Uh, so when the guys are using Warrior now and it, it's all sorted, yeah, we were the test case. Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah, I remember Honda Rangers. We used yeah. to go there to do final training before yeah. he deployed or something yeah. but god fell asleep when he created that place yeah god god yeah. it's pretty big though isn't it? it's pretty big yeah the lunaberg heath yeah. salter hona deep joys yeah hours spent playing on that place so how long was you uh, out there for uh, uh, well we were out there from 87 to god 90 92 it must have been because yeah. we deployed uh, or the battalion i didn't i got posted back to uh regimental headquarters 
um, which was really annoying because the first Gulf started. Right, uh, yeah. And that's really annoying not to be in, in a war. Mm. Um, it's something you think of when you're young, I want to go to war, and you dream of having medals, and, uh, and then you realise it's all pretty bad. Mm. Uh, but that comes with age. Right, um, yeah. So the battalion although never deployed as an entity, funnily enough, we are still the only battalion with, with a battle honour that never deployed as a battalion. Uh, originally, um, we were sending the Queen's Company with the Stafford's uh, battle group. Uh, so we were forming battle groups um, and they were going out. Then we decided, or it was decided by the gods, that they would need more. Uh, so two company went out, three company went out, support company... And actually, there was no... 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards did deploy, but not as a battalion. Oh, right. So they were with other units. Okay, um, okay. So then after after the Gulf War, once we had, we had done that um, uh, and we were stopped from carrying on to Baghdad, which history now tells us was probably a bad thing, um, but it was clearly just a clear uh, Kuwait at the time. Uh, it was back to Wellington Barracks. Uh, right. So the battalion uh, went back to Wellington Barracks in 92. Yeah. 91. Oh, the years are flying by. And we went back to South Omar. <laughs> right, right. So 93, I think we went back to South Omar, Besbrook Mill, the usual haunts. I was now a colour sergeant. Okay, yeah. Um, so that is, for, for anybody that isn't aware, uh, that's the equivalent of a staff sergeant for... No, like, it's not the equivalent of anything. Is it not? It, it's a colour sergeant. Okay. Look it up. Okay. So you've got <laughs> yes. three stripes and a crown. That would be correct. <laughs> Which is a staff sergeant yeah, in Royal I'm, Engineers terms. I, I must not be flippant. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But I was a colour sergeant. So you'd gone from Lance Corporal, Corporal Sergeant, and now colour sergeant. Is correct. that right? Yep. Okay. Um, so I was now a, a, a colour sergeant with the battalion... Uh, in an admin role at, at that time. Um, and we did that tour. We came back um, to Wellington Barracks, um, having lost um, one guy uh, on the 31st of December, uh, a wonderful young guardsman called Danny Blinko, uh, who was shot um, in Cross McGlen uh, by the sniper. Um, and that had a huge effect uh, on the battalion um, because, again, uh, I think out there that the, there was nothing that the boys could have done. Um, uh, and Danny wasn't the only one he got. He, I think Private Restrick was his last kill. Uh, I think the sniper landed up with nine confirmed kills. Um, so that was, that was a, tough, a tough gig. Uh, we came back from that. What did we do then? What did we do then? Well, funnily enough, we went from Wellington Barracks and got posted to South Armagh. But only right. this time uh, we went to Balakinla, um, okay. down in the Moor Mountains, uh, with wives and family. Um, I was, I think I was still a colour sergeant at the time, maybe going on WO2. Um so the whole battalion moved out to Northern Ireland. And, and how was that? How, what was the energy like there? Because It's, it's very different. Doing, yeah. a, doing a three-year tour from a, what we called the emergency tours or the op-banner tours, uh, it's very different doing a three-year tour. 
Uh, your your families are, are there. There there's quarters, uh, all albeit behind the wire. Balakinla is an extraordinarily beautiful place. It, it's down on the coast. Uh, you could run along sandy beaches, seals. You had the more mountains, um, but it is South Armagh, uh, and you, you better not forget that. But it was time. Uh, I then they were looking to post me. Um, from the battalion, um, and the options were were, were London, uh, and, and I'm I'm not really an office, although I, I'm now in an admin role. The thought of sitting in London, going yes sir, no sir, three with no purpose, didn't suit me. So I volunteered, <laughs> much to my wife's horror, uh, for another three years. Only this time, further in the in the danger area of South Omar, a place called Porterdale. Really? Okay. Uh, so I had to go home, tell my wife, saying, we're being posted. Well, that's lovely, dear. Where to? Now, you've got to bear in mind, I knew a lot about Northern Ireland, but my wife didn't. She just knew that when we went away, we lost people and people died, and that was it. Now I was taking my wife and daughter to South Omar. Mm. It's not a great conversation, if I'm no. honest. But, you know, bless both of them. Uh, I was then posted to Porterdown, uh, Headquarters 3 Brigade. Sounds very posh, um, but Headquarters 3 Brigade was in a porter cabin. Right. Um, it was probably the most operational brigade that we had at the time, uh, which I loved. It was operational. The stuff you did mattered. Uh, I, I find it very hard chasing pieces of paper around just for a DCI or some dress regulations. It doesn't really matter. When you're doing it in an operational environment, you better get it right. Yeah. Um, and I loved every minute of it. Uh, and actually, we, we had three amazing years. Okay. Um, you know, at one time, um, the RA sealed off off the camp, uh, so they chinooked bread and milk in. Well, you still had the families behind yeah, the wire. Yeah, yeah. Um, so during Drum Cree, which is a bizarre parade um, thing in Northern Ireland, uh, you had the Catholics and, and the, the RA stoning you and shooting you and rioting, and you could literally move 100 metres back and they were handing out your burgers and coffees. Uh, I mean, wow. you know, Blackadder really should do Blackadder Fifth and, and, and go there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but an extraordinary country. Yeah, um, yeah. I loved every minute uh, of Northern Ireland, uh, both operationally as a job it was testing, um, but as a country, it's stunning. Mm. Uh, you know, you have to be careful, but, you know, the more mountains, Glen Arif up in the north, um, Giant's Causeway, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. Yanaskin yeah. Lakes, um, beautiful country. Yeah. Uh, and, and I can concur that I, I was there last year, luckily, yeah. um, on a little holiday trip. And, yeah. and it really is. It really it, it's is. It's stunning. Um, so that takes us up to what year? That's Well, that I did three years in uh, Porterdown. Uh, and then very quietly, the records office or postings or whatever you guys call them uh, said, right, Mark, you know, you, you've done enough operational, you know, where do you want to go? And I said, look, I, I'm not up for that. You know, you just tell me where you want to go. And he said, well, no, no, it's not, you know. So I said, well, you know, I, the Supreme Headquarters 
uh, Ally Powers Europe in, in Mons sounds like a good place to me. Um, so I got posted um, to special operations uh, in the Supreme Headquarters Ally Powers Europe, or as it used to be known, super holiday at public expense. <laughs> um, but this is uh, the military wing of NATO. Uh, it is based in a place called Mons. Uh, for interest's sake, that's where the First World War started. Yeah. Um, and it's about 40 clicks south of Brussels. A vast, vast headquarters made up of, of every NATO country. Um, so Sakur is based there, Supreme Headquarters, sorry, Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, who's always an American. Um, basically paid for by Americans. It's an extraordinary place. Um, bowling alleys, and, you know, in, in the middle of Belgium. Yeah. But I was fortunate enough that I was posted to a very small office um, of special operations, uh, spec ops, uh, where we looked after the link between our special forces of, of NATO countries uh, and really the Supreme Headquarters. Um, so I was fortunate enough to serve with um, the SAS colonels and, and whatever, um, special forces, rangers. Um, I think the office was four of us. Oh, okay. Um, and it was wonderful because no one could ask us what we did. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't tell anybody what we did. And if we wanted to go for a beer down in the Grand Platz in Mons because it was a sunny day, that's what we did. And no one <laughs> could tell us we couldn't. Um, but actually, I learned a huge amount. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough, as I say, both at Porter Down with Headquarters 3 Brigade and at the Supreme Headquarters to, to work with grown-ups mm. uh, and to watch some extraordinary leaders, um, some extraordinary intelligence, some extraordinary common sense, some extraordinary professionalism at play, up close and personal. Yeah. Um, and that was a real privilege, and I, I learned a huge amount from them. Um, so that was uh, as a W two W one. Yeah, I was W two at the yeah. time, um, and then for some inexplicable reason, um, they promoted me W one, um, and I went from special operations, uh, still at shape, to being uh, the staff assistant and families officer. All right. Oh, deep joy. Okay. I mean, going from, uh, at the time, we were dealing with Kosovo, Bosnia, and Iraq, uh, to dealing with mums who had a problem with their quarters or, or dads or dad had been posted, so mum dropped the baby in my in-tray and said, well, you effing look after it. Um, that was quite a shock. Oh, yeah, huge. <laughs> you know, I was sort of running back up to spec ops going, let me back in. Yeah. Um, anything. Um but again, it was another skill set, um, dealing with uh, and helping the, the families, uh, the welfare. Um, and I guess really at that time, welfare became a thing uh, and it was important. Uh, and I became very passionate about that. Okay. Um, I was lucky enough to wear a, a fairly big badge uh, and I could shout at people really quite well at that time. Okay. Um, and so I championed the families and that's really uh, became a burning passion of mine uh, the welfare not only of the guys um, but of the families and I think it, it was really around that time when when you look back at, at 
what you went through at the guards depot and, and you recognize that as bullying uh, and you recognize all these things and you go that's not going to happen on my watch mm. uh, and in all fairness the military w- was looking to change okay uh, yeah. it really was uh, okay. and about bloody time yeah uh, you know the families certainly previously had been looked on well you stay there and we'll go and do our job i mean you know uh, thankfully that that changed dramatically mm. yeah um and i was i was very fortunate um to be recommended to be commissioned okay um and so commissioning beckoned but being a slightly awkward bugger i, I thought that's not for me um i remember getting hauled up to germany in front of the general and going Mark, this is ridiculous. You know, you, you, you must be commissioned. This is what we want. I, I just don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I've had enough. Um, and I think it was a huge shock, not least to my wife, uh, when I said, well, you know, I, I'm leaving. Well, what are you going to do? Uh, no idea. So this is the first time you th- you really thought about leaving? Yeah, I think I, I've always looked back, Gab, uh, I think if you serve long enough, you you go through a frustrated period, an angry period. The military changes by the day. There's good times, there's bad times, um, there's very sad times. Yeah. And I'd done all that. Okay. I, I wasn't cross, I wasn't fr- I'm just done. <laughs> yeah. Um, you go on army and do what you need to do, and, and that's fab by me. I'm going to do something else. Fortunately for me... I got phoned up by uh, an ex-colonel in the Coldstream Guards. Um, so firstly, it was unusual because I, I don't normally speak to colonels, let alone in the Coldstream Guards. Uh, and he phoned up and I was sat at my desk at the Supreme Headquarters and he said, Mr Elliot, uh, my name's Colonel. Uh, I'd like to offer you a job. So I go, right, OK, fine, fill your boots. Um, Anyway, put the phone down. Well, he said, well, have a think about it. Well, of course, I never even thought about it. You know, the man's a lunatic. Um, went home, said to her wife, somebody's just offered me a job. Doing well, I, said, I didn't even pay attention. I've absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Three weeks later, he phoned back and, and said, have you thought about it? So clearly I had to bluff my way and go, absolutely, but I would like to know more. And so tested the water. I said, look, clearly this is a time to involve my my wife in these decisions. Um, So if you fly us back to the UK, um, you know, I'll I'll see what... He said, well, we'll interview you. And I said, no, that's that's not how it's going to work. If I'm going to leave, then I I want to leave doing something. So they flew my wife and I back. We had this interview with... uh, a retired rear admiral and, and a colonel uh, and an American guy about setting up an insurance company to help members of the armed forces uh, because we, we, I don't know whether it's still as bad, but we had a real rubbish deal. Um, you know, if you were a soldier, they, they double your premium. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, they, they had some seed funding to set up this company to build an insurance company, startup. Anyway, so this went terribly well. It sounded very exciting. Um, And I'd never forgotten it. Uh, And the guy said at the end of the interview, right, Mark, how much do we owe you? 
So I said, well, you know, it's this, it's this, this. And I said, I'm really sorry. We had to get a taxi because this. Uh, and he got out this checkbook, you see, and he said, right, da, da, da. and he, he wrote the amount and passed me the check. So we, we got outside. It was it was the Horse Guards Hotel in London. And uh, my wife said, what, what are you doing? What are you going to do? What have you decided? I said, I'm getting out. And she said, what made you mind up? I said, that's the first time in 25 years anybody's just listened to what I said and then trusted me and given me the check. I'm having some of this. <laughs> and, and that was it. I went back, uh, went back to shape and, and said goodbye. Um, and they go, you can't do this. I think you find I can. And I guess that takes us on to, you know, the transitioning. Yeah, um, back, Because back. I joined, going back, uh, a recruiting office at 16. Um, I appeared to be 41. Um, back in the UK, funnily enough, at, at Andover. Okay. Posted back to the UK for my last six months in the UK. Walked into the Andover support unit. As a W01. And the commanding officer said, well, Mr. Elliott, you know, for six months, you know, we'll, you'll, you'll go through transition. I said, I'm, I'm out of here. And he said, pardon. I said, look, let's be honest. I, I don't want you and you really don't want me. Trust me. Uh, well, you know, the grass isn't always green on this. I'm fine. You know, if we can cut the lectures, I'm out of here. And that was my transition. Right. You know, what, what about resettlement? No, thanks. Uh, what, what are you going to teach me? Uh, I'm, I'm going to run a startup or help build a startup company. Um, I had no idea how to buy a house. Um, I thought you just went, I'll have that one. <laughs> uh, well, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I've yeah. been away since yeah. I was 16. I'm now 41. Yeah. I had never voted. Um, I didn't have an NHS number. I'd never voted. I wasn't on the electoral registration. I had a driving licence from the UK, but rarely driven in the UK. Um, so I did not exist. I had no credit rating. Um, so it's time to start building that. I, I mean, it was just extraordinary. You know, I, I remember my wife, I thought with, with my money getting out, it's about time. So we went to buy her a Renault Clio car. I thought, you know, get her a car. So we brought this new car for the first time ever. And, of course, I had no credit rating. Right. So the only thing she had was a Tesco's club card. <laughs> and, and that was it. Yeah. Um, and then it got really annoying that, you know, he said, right, you know, if you want this, uh, I need your address. That's fine. My address is, right, now, how long have you been there? Six months. Uh, well, where were you before? Oh, well, that's all right. You know, 189 Domaine de la Brise, Oberg, Mons. Well, where's that? Well, it's in Belgium. Oh, well, that's no good. What? Where were you before? Oh, well, I was, I was in Porter Down, Northern Ireland. You're really going to hate that. Uh, and then they used to say, and I hated it, hated it. Oh, well, Northern Ireland doesn't count. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I lost it a few times ago. I yeah. think you find it does count. That's what we've been fighting for. Um, anyway, you kind of get over that. Um, but I hadn't been anywhere. Mm. I, I hadn't lived in the UK. Um, so brought a house. Uh, we started this insurance company, um, a call centre in Colchester, building it from scratch, um, 
learning about technology as it was then, flying in Siebel engineers from California uh, and having ops meetings where these engineers, and Gav, you would know this, talking about such complex stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, that we had to agree that we would call them widgets. Okay. Um, because I had no idea what they were talking about. I just want you to give me a droppy down box there. Yeah. And it better do that. Yeah. Well, it's not that simple, Mark. <laughs> I want a droppy down box and it better look like that. Yeah. Um, so we, we found a way of working and I got my droppy down box. And, <laughs> but we built a whole CRM. Uh, so this was another path into technology uh, about the power of CRM mm. um, and looking to the future um, of tele, uh, telephone activated CRM. And, and it's still not there. It, it really isn't. Um, so I did that uh, and eventually uh, became managing director um, of that, a smaller version of it. Um, and I know very little about insurance, um, but I can start a company. Brilliant. Um, and then I started a countryside organisation, um, which was great fun. Um, and only reason for that was that I wanted to go out shooting with my dogs and I found it very complicated as a serviceman, uh, having been away for basically 25 years. So what did that company do? Well, this was an idea to, to get guys and girls back out into the countryside. So within the shooting world, there's beaters and pickers up, and, and the, the beaters push out the birds, and it's a great, lovely walk on some stunning countryside. And, and the pickers up with their dogs pick up wounded birds that the guns have shot. But, of course... In the old days, nobody moved around, uh, whereas nowadays no one stayed in one area for very long. Mm. Um, and I thought this was a bad thing. Um, so why couldn't you go to another shoot in another part of the country and say, oh, I'm a member of this organisation? And that would hold something. So I started a thing called NOBS, um, called the National Organisation for Beaters and Pickers Up, uh, I, I just, it was so funny. Uh, <laughs> with a serious background. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, the countryside it, it is so important and it's a magical place. And so I had a pound coin and said, right, you know, let's start an organisation, a, a company with a pound. And I thought, I remember doing it. Uh, I remember thinking, well, I, I, I don't know much about the countryside. I, I you know, I know about weapons and South Armagh. I don't know a lot about the countryside. Yeah. And by starting this organisation, I, within a year, I was writing articles in the, the countryside press and, and suddenly became the expert on the countryside when, quite frankly, I knew nothing. But I had some wonderful friends that I'd found in the past couple of years that I'd been doing. And so this must have been... 05, uh, 2005 when I started it. Um, and I had a mate of mine who I still shoot with, um, who, who was a vet. So I made him director of veterinary affairs. I had a wonderful lady, um, Claire, who, who was a, a lawyer, right? Your director of legal affairs. Uh, another guy who was a phenomenal um, landscape architect, right? Your conservation. And I pulled together this incredible team of, of professionals who gave me their time. I knew nothing <laughs> um, and, and just learnt. 
Mm. Um, but I needed a patron. I needed a name. And I knew at the time, and still does, that Vinnie Jones um, really championed the countryside, both shooting and fishing. So I thought, right, I'll get hold of Vinnie Jones. Oh, I don't know how to do that. So it's out on the computer and, you know, I'm not even sure it was Google in those days. It was probably Yahoo or something, <laughs> wasn't it? Um, and I sent these emails into the ether and then one day uh, this email came back. Hello, Mark, it's Vinny. I don't know why I'm putting on a voice because it, <laughs> it was clearly an email. Anyway, I imagine this is what he said. Um, it, it's Vinny. Phone me. And I remember sitting there um, and my wife said, what's the matter? I said, I've got to phone Vinnie Jones. She said, what? I said, I've got to phone what, what, what do you do? And, of course, I had no idea. Um, you know, these were, these were gods. These were celebrities. Yeah. So anyway, eventually, you know, got, got the phone. Clearly not an iPhone in those days. <laughs> uh, I went, yeah, Vinnie. I went, oh, Vinnie, it's, it's Mark. Hello, mate, what are we doing then? And we just got on like a house on fire. And I said, look, this is what I'm doing. This is what we're going to do. Uh, and Vinny got behind it um, and really launched it on. And I think it was the 12th of August, which is known as the Glorious 12th. It really opens the shooting season. And the Daily Telegraph did a double spudge on, on me and the organisation and Vinny. Um, but the headline, uh, and it, it, it was wonderful... Vinnie Jones, number one knob. And then just <laughs> um, the power of the press. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and again, another lesson learned. And uh, so the National Organization of Beaters and Pickers Up, still going on. Brilliant. Um, still tying people up with gamekeepers, with shoots, getting people into mm. the countryside. Um, and, and that's been a, a love, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, that, that, that sounds like... Uh... An amazing feat that, that that was created and and as you say still ongoing um and that's the early 2000s so you you left the military um, i left the military in, in, in 2002 2001 2002 yeah. uh, set up the insurance company uh, and did that really until 2008 okay um okay. Uh, and there's an obvious overlap of 2007 yeah. Yeah. but you've got to remember Help for Heroes came along and, and we were all volunteers. Yeah. Well, before we go down that route, um, I just wanted to ask and, and maybe give you the opportunity. We went over your career fairly quickly. Uh, you did 25 years. You, you got from a guardsman all the way up to W01. It sounds like you went to some, some amazing places and some eye-opening places. Is there any kind of stories that you like to tell, you know, the... The, the, the grandchildren or uh, or any of your kind of like new recruits that come through these days that really stand out for you during your time? You're going to hate this, Gav. But but no. No? Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's for no other reason that I can talk to you about some horrific, horrific times mm -hmm. and some sad times, some glorious times. You weren't there and the audience yeah. wasn't there and yeah. I will never get that across. What I will say um, is that it was probably the best thing I ever did. Okay. Um, what I will say is I met the most extraordinary people in the military. Um, 
great friends, great mates. And as you know, you don't have to see them to be great mates. No. I mean, you carry on a conversation. Uh, I've seen mates that I haven't seen for 15 years and we've carried on the bloody conversation. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Here we go, right, how are you? Yep, good, right, crack on. Still married to the same one? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it just carries it on. It, it's extraordinary yeah. and it's very hard. I'm not one. I, I'm not a veteran that, that, that I don't live in the past. Okay. I, I know what happened and what didn't happen. Um, and, I, and I'm very happy to leave it there. Um, That's fine. I went on uh, and I do something else, but I'm incredibly proud obviously, of, of what we all did. Mm. Um, it was the people for me. Okay, uh, okay. And, and many of them that, that didn't make it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd, it, it's not something for me. All right. Uh, well, my other quick question then before we move forward. Yeah. see if I can dump that one. <laughs> <laughs> so during school, you did sports. Yeah. In the military, did you do sports? Yeah, but, but kind of different ones. Okay. Um, Let's talk about that. Well, it's interesting <laughs> because I suppose my greatest love uh, is cricket, and I'm not very good. All right. <laughs> it's really bloody annoying. Um, so I captained at school. I captained the football team, but I don't love football. Right. I like football. I can play it. Cricket was my passion, and I'm not very good at it. Uh, um, I used to play village cricket quite a bit, but but I love my cricket. Um so cricket was, was always something. In the infantry at that time, um, you know, unless you were really high-level sport, then there wasn't a lot. You know, right. you did a lot of tabbing. Okay, uh, yeah. And you did a lot of running and you did a lot of shooting. Um, but really rugby, you know, was for the Royal Welsh or the Welsh Guards. Uh, funnily enough, the Grenadier Guards were quite good at basketball because we're all over seven foot tall. <laughs> so that, that kind of helped. Um, football we could play, swimming we could play. But unless you were in the high level, um, it really wasn't thing. You know, the, the, the British Army was pretty good at drinking and, and I, I frankly excelled at that. Right. Um, certainly did, for many did years. Did you guys have sports afternoons? Yeah, but we just went drinking. Went drink. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, Wednesday afternoon. You know, we always used to say, and I'm sure it's true now. You know, whatever you do, you know, the Russians in those days, or, or anybody, whatever you do, if you're going to invade the UK, do it on a Wednesday afternoon or Friday at twelve o'clock because there ain't nobody here. Um, so yeah, sport. No, you were on your scratcher, avoiding um, some horrible sergeant saying, "Oh, right, we're all going out playing football." Uh, no, we're not. I'm mm. getting ready to go out tonight. Thanks very much. So did, you did a bit of cricket then? With, yeah, I played a lot of cricket. In fact, yeah. broke my shoulder playing cricket in Berlin, which was which was not a great plan. Um, I, I I was wicket keeping and, and landed on my shoulder. I went that hurt. And oh. I always remember a guy, a friend of mine called Jim Annitz, who was bowling. I said, I'm, I'm not sure it's broken. He said, Oh, it's broken, mate. I said, How do you know? He said, I heard it from the other end. Oh no! Go, oh well, this isn't going well. Um, but, yeah, it didn't play a part. I then stupidly took up marathon running. Oh, uh, okay. So uh, I think I did the London Marathon first in 1992. And, and again, stupidly Mark's mouth in, in the, the mess in Wellington Barracks. Somebody said they were running a marathon. I, being a gobshite, <laughs> said, well, it can't be that hard, can it? You know, you just tab it out. 
you know, anybody must be able to do it in under six hours because even if you march it, you could... Uh, and, of course, in those days, you could get into the London Marathon. Uh, and so he went, dunk. Uh, right, come on then. And he went, oh, dear God. I so was... I remember, you know, I was in, uh, we had a quarter in Mill Hill uh, and I went for a run for a mile and my wife had to come and pick me up. <laughs> uh, and so I said, you know, again, stupidly, right, I'm going to run and I'm going to keep doing this and, until the London Marathon invite me. I'm going to get that good. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I, I, I kept running like Forrest Gump. Really? Uh, and then eventually got onto the elite start line of the London Marathon. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and ran all over the world. So I, from uh, New York to Berlin to Cologne to Manchester, London 15 times, Belfast, Kenya, I ran up Mount Kenya, first, first British man to do it. Um, wow. What was that like? Uh, well, painful, and only because we, we didn't believe it. Uh, okay. So there were a group of us. We were at Nanuki camp with the battalion. Um, and a, a wonderful chap I, I knew called Bongo Woodley. What a great name, Bongo. <laughs> anyway, Bongo was a safari keeper on, on Mount Kenya. He said, oh, Mark, you know, the world's finest athletes are, are going to run a marathon from uh, Suramine Gate, uh, so 6,000 feet above sea level. Uh, up to Point Lanana, uh, 17,500 feet. Yeah, all right. Uh, well, what are you doing? Well, we'll go and do it. Pardon? So drove back to the Nanuki camp. Right, who's coming? What are we doing? Well, we're going to run to the top of Mount Kenya. We can't run to the top of Mount Kenya. You know, it takes four days to climb and... Uh, no, no. So um, myself, a guy called Johnny Wrench, Steve DeMant, uh, guys from the battalion, uh, got in a Land Rover, uh, turned up, uh, and there's Transworld Sports and, and nine of the finest athletes in the world and, and four servicemen uh, in a pair of shorts. Um, and she said, we're, we're going to run there. And in the distance was Mount Kenya. Well, lions, elephants, yeah. <laughs> right, OK. Uh, so it was, you know, uh, 15 miles up uh, and 11 miles back down. Off you go. You're kidding. Um, I'm not using the language we obviously used. Yeah. Uh, and so we set off. And you went up above, you know, tree line, um, and it's getting darker and darker. A um, couple of the guys dropped out uh, and Johnny Wrencher and I cracked up onto the scree slope, onto the glacier. We're in shorts and T-shirts. Wow. Um, uh, and anyway, we, we, we did it, uh, came back down, ran 11 miles back to the finish line. Uh, I remember collapsing uh, across the finish line and they're going, you know, get fluids in him, get fluids in him, get a drip in him. Uh, and I said, I, I, I don't want a drip in me. I said, I want an effing sandwich. I'm starving. <laughs> um, because it had taken us, I think it was seven hours, 40 minutes um that's 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 so, quick isn't so it? yeah the first first british men to run to the top of mount oh Kenya. my god amazing uh, so yeah we we would always joke with the battalion that you know uh, it took you four days real men do it in under in under eight hours <laughs> um so i i love my running uh, Brilliant. I, I had a whale of a time doing it and eventually got to the the elite sign of, of the london marathon that's incredible 
So you you did that, but what was your first marathon like? Did you hit that wall when? No, 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 never. I, I I suppose being a guardsman, uh, my first three marathons, so I trained pretty hard. So my first marathon in '92, I did three hours thirty three minutes. Uh, my second marathon a year later was three hours, 30 minutes and 30 seconds. My third marathon was three hours, 30 minutes and 15 seconds. Because I thought if you just kept running, you would get faster, <laughs> which clearly you don't. You just stay at the same pace. You can just run for longer time. So yeah. I just became Forrest Gump. I was metronomic <laughs> being a guardsman. Um, so didn't learn about training techniques. And uh, once uh, I had some advice and took some advice on training techniques and the different ways, uh, I went to 3.15, to 3.10, to 3.5, to under 3, uh, to 2.50, to 2.45. Is that your quickest then, 2.45? Yeah. yeah. I still bloody it, It's reasonably <laughs> fast. Yeah, I mean, the fact that I can, I can barely walk now is not testament to run to, to running. But, yeah, I had a whale of a time running. Amazing, uh, amazing. And, and, and travelled the world on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, we'll jump back to uh, your time with the two companies. And you, you mentioned there's a crossover there. And, and you moved on to Help for Heroes. Wasn't that right? Yeah, so, it, it, again, this sort of ties in... You know, and I'm I'm not one for for fate, um, but there was an extraordinary time in in 2007. Um, I was running the the countryside organisation. I was still MD of an insurance company, um, and I was still running. Uh, I had been to a gun dog demonstration uh, up in Oxford, and there was an incredible demonstration by a wonderful charity called Canine Partners. And this guy was demonstrating what these dogs could do for the disabled. Uh, and I looked at my stupid Labradors and they're going, bloody hell, you know, come on. The, these dogs, you know, were turning lights off, turning lights on, putting washing in washing machines, shutting the door and turning it on, for God's sake. I mean, extraordinary. And I don't know why, Gap, but I said to my wife, hang on there. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to have a word with the chap. I said, I think what they're doing is extraordinary. So I went up to this guy and I said, look, you, you don't know me, but I think what you do is amazing. I'll run a marathon and, and try and raise you 500 quid. Uh, to which he went, thanks very much. Why wouldn't you? So once I'd done that, I thought, how the bloody hell do you raise 500 quid? I've absolutely no idea. I can run, but raising money. So again, I, I sent round emails to friends um, and one of them uh, was Bryn and Emma Parry, uh, who I knew through the countryside. Okay. And the reply from Emma, being the wonderful Emma that she is, uh, said, absolutely no problem. I'll give you £20 if you help us raise £10,000 for wounded, sick and injured servicemen. Um, and with your background, we could do with some help. And I went, yeah, of course. What, what could possibly go wrong with that plan? Raise £10,000, do your bit for the boys and girls, I'm out of here. And that's it. And, and there you go. <laughs> that's, that's the end of the podcast. Uh, so, yeah. So it, it brought in running. It brought in the countryside. Um, Brynn and I often used to joke that 
Help for Heroes was well, firstly started by a failed captain in an XWO1. Uh, I often remind them that he was the failed captain. <laughs> uh, brackets on, brackets off, utter genius. Um, and also, if we were talking to the countryside, um, it was started by a gun uh, and a beater. Yeah, um, yeah. So wherever we were, we, we brought our different worlds in, into play. Brilliant. Um, and so what did that look like going forward? Um, so obviously that was the first milestone was to bring 10,000 in, um, but you, you achieved that and uh, yeah, we, we, Well, that, that was before we had a name. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, we, we, we didn't even have a name. Um, I've still got the list. Uh, we came up with some rubbish names. I mean, th this could have all gone horribly wrong. Um, so we met up in, in Salisbury, right? What are we going to do? And Bryn being, it's not an understatement, a, a creative genius. It is, his head just explodes with ideas. Um, it's really annoying sometimes, <laughs> but at other times, utter inspiration. And the ideas are going all over the place. And I go, well, well hold on. Um, so there was a coming together of, of minds of a of a creative genius and an XWO1 who, who could do stuff. And that kind of worked. Um, so there were about six of us at the time. Um, we knew we moved a, a six-foot table uh, and, and one computer, wasn't even Apple, <laughs> um, into a friend's attic in Salisbury. Um, and I've never forgotten it. Got this bloody table up to the top of the attic. And Brian went, mate, I'm not sure that's enough. And he go, well, he could have told me that before we put the table up there. So anyway, uh, I knew of some old tin huts um, that were for startup companies. And maybe if we told them that we were helping wounded, sick and injured, they would give us it for free because we didn't have any money. Right. Uh, I mean, we had nothing. Uh, and luckily enough, they did. So during the summer of, of 07, there were lots of conversations, lots of ideas. I mean, frankly, bizarre. I mean, it, it went from £10,000 that, you know, maybe we could raise £5 million. And you go, you're in cuckoo. Now, I don't know about you, Gav. I've never seen £5 million in my life. But, no. Um, and then, you know, we, we got a name. Uh, we were absolutely adamant that the name had to sort of reflect what it does so does what it says on the can uh, and we were helping heroes um, so the tin hut uh, i came in here um, with some window lean and a hoover uh, the guardsman never leaves you <laughs> uh, had no furniture uh, had no telephones had no money uh, so scrounge those um, scrounge the telephones all for free um, on the first of september 2007, 1st of October 2007, uh, we launched a, a, a thing called Help for Heroes uh, that was going to raise £5 million to build a swimming pool for the boys and girls at Headley Court. Yeah. Um, and once that was done, um, back into our, our hole. We were all volunteers um, doing our bit, as Emma said. Yeah. Um, 13 and a half, nearly 14 years later, I'm still sat in a tin hut talking to you. Yeah, and it's it's amazing being here. Um, and I said to you when I walked in, just seeing all these pictures on the wall and what's been accomplished and achieved over that time is just incredible. And it it hits me home because it helped me, you know. 
Um, I get emotional because I think without Hell for Heroes, I might not be here. And um, you mentioned about raising the five million um, to build the pool. And I was at Headley Court. I was at Headley Court before that building was built. And, uh, you know, I was there for 13 different courses to try and stay in the military and uh, recover from my surgeries. And when that was built, it was incredible. It was just like another level. Um, and everybody, all of my friends, people that I was on course with, feel it, know it, and, and yeah, I'm think- really proud of Help for Heroes. I mean, I th- it. I mean, you you, you haven't met Bren, Bryn. You, you've heard of much, but it was a coming together of two very awkward buggers. Yeah, um, that would not accept no for an answer, and kept asking why. Um, Apparently, I was always like it in the military. I thought I was entirely reasonable. <laughs> Apparently, I wasn't. Um, and when people used to say, you know, well, dear boy, that's the way it is. And you go, well, that's wrong. That's not the way it is. It's wrong. We've mm. got to do more. Well, it won't happen. It effing well will. Yeah. Um, I mean, some extraordinary conversations, which I, I shan't bore you with and probably should remain private with, high-ranking officers, politicians. Uh, I mean, the utter um, lethargy, I think, of not wanting to help. Not. It wasn't a lack of wanting to help. There was no vision that it could be better. It was no vision of what you and I... Right, that's what you get. And we would go, well, why can't it be better? Why can't it be the best? And they would just go, well, it can't be. That's the way it is. And that's not right. Um, and, you know, Bryn particularly is like a Rottweiler um, or, or like a ferret. Once he bites you, he ain't going to let go yeah, yeah. Uh, until they get the right answer. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And so we just annoyed the shit out of people, which was tremendous fun most of the time. Yeah. But it was always, always to make sure the boys and the girls and their families got the best. And if it wasn't the best, then we would go again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was right at the start with the swimming pool. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it was, it was going to be the best. If we were going to do this, it was going to be the best swimming pool. Um, and and that's never left us, mm. uh, you know, right through to recovery centres, ultimate um, extraordinary tales. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and just seeing people going from strength to strength and getting their life back, and uh, it's just incredible what, I what, think, what I the think recovery we centres do. Yeah, I think we were. I think bizarrely, because we didn't come from that background, we didn't know what we were meant to know. So, you know, we hadn't raised money before. We hadn't been in the charity sector. Um, We weren't particularly tied to the military. Um, I'd been out a a while. Bryn had been out, blimey, 15, 20 years. Um, So that that baggage didn't sit with you. Um, You were able to ask some some pretty poignant questions um, and you weren't going to take rubbish answers yeah which we were getting back um so it 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 was a passion 
mm. uh, and it kind of worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's probably worthwhile saying right now, um, we might not be in the mix of Afghanistan and Iraq as we were the past 10 years, but everybody that's been hit hard by injuries, illnesses, whatever it may be, still need our support and still need that help. It is, it's, it's so funny, isn't it, that you know, the attention span um, of both the media and the British public, uh, and this goes back to, I guess, almost help heroes' success. I've always believed that the British public cares about the armed forces. Um, it's shown that time and time again. Certainly in 2007, it had forgotten to care about them. Um, I think other military charities had forgotten to remind the British public uh, of what our armed forces do, and I was sure as hell going to do that. Uh, and that's what we did. We reminded the British public um, of our armed forces. And, of course, when the war ends, um, you know, their attention spanned very quickly, you know, perhaps not this year, very quickly uh, switches to... Big Brother, Strictly Comes Dancing, or, or whether Tesco's or, or, or as Bread or Milk. Uh, yeah. And the boys and girls and their, their families disappear off the front pages when perversely that's when they're needed most mm -hmm. um, because the military is pretty good at looking after its servicemen and women and families in service. Uh, but once you're gone... Um, it's not great, yeah. uh, he says politely. So the boys and girls and their families continue every day to, f to fight battles, both physical and mental injuries. Uh, and it's our job to remind the British public that, that they're still fighting those mm. battles. Yeah. Uh, and we can do better. Um, you know, medical science has moved on extraordinary, uh, even in the past, you know, 13, 14 years. Um, both mental health uh, and the awareness particularly of mental health has come on leaps and bounds, uh, and rightfully so. But the physical and mental injuries are still there. Uh, and Help Hero's job is to make sure the British public don't forget uh, and help those boys and girls and their families. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't think the mission's changed in, in 14 years, as in its core values. Uh, we said we would support wounded, sick and injured for life. And that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I'm going to say, if, if, if anybody listening to this does want to donate to Help for Heroes, then, then please do. Yeah, um, please. Really needed. <laughs> um, and we'll help for the foreseeable as, as long as we can. So. But it, it, it's not going anywhere. Um, and, you know, you and I both know, well, perhaps me more so, um, that we will go and fight another war um, and our young men and women of this country will join the armed forces and they will go and fight a war um, or if they like to call it a conflict, whatever. Um, but the boys and girls get will get wounded, will get injured, uh, both mentally and physically. And it is unacceptable um, when they return that they don't have the very best. Uh, so we we will be here mm -hmm. uh, and this time they will have the best yeah yeah well i think uh 
that might be a nice way to to end. Um, but what I'm going to give you the opportunity now, Mark, is for anybody that's thinking of joining the military, um, maybe they've got friends and family that are already in, uh, especially like maybe, I don't know, the Navy's very busy at the moment. <laughs> but do you have any words of wisdom from your time in advice that you might give them if they were thinking of joining up to our British military? Or any military, in fact. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, and it's always, you know, and this is part of the reason uh, why I don't go down the, the swinging the light bulb stories. This is their time. I, I have my time. Uh, me and my friends did our bit. Uh, we've talked about Josh and, and, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. That was their time. Um the guys and girls now, this this is their time, you know, and they're dealing with not only, you know, the Navy in, in the Channel, they're dealing with COVID, um, they're doing extraordinary things. Uh, and that's their time. The military is an incredible organisation uh, as, a, as a whole. It's bloody annoying if you, if you bury down to it. Um, but for young guys and girls... Um, you know, it certainly changed my life uh, that was was going absolutely nowhere, um, although some could argue it didn't go very far. Um, and so absolutely, um, you know, it, 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 is, it gives you so much that you don't know. You know, I always joke now with, with veterans, uh, particularly those who've recently got out, the problem is they don't know what they know. Yeah, And they have so many skills that they don't know they had. Uh, you know, from going out on patrols to doing all that stuff with the COVID they're doing. Uh, you know, those are skills in civilian life. They just don't know it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, if it's for you, um, then join it. Yeah. Equally, if it's not for you, it ain't the right place. Mm -hmm. um, so... I would always look at the armed forces. Uh, I think it gives you an incredible career, incredible skills, uh, meet amazing people. Uh, I'm not going to use the old adage of travel the world and because um, that's not necessarily so. And if you are, it's not always to do nice things. Um, but the family, um, the comradeship, the fellowship, the professionalism, um, the standards sets you up to do anything you want to when you get out. The problem is they don't know that. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose the last thing is what advice have you got for veterans that are have either just left or about to leave? You just mentioned about they've got skills that, that they don't know they have. So what advice do you have for those? Have confidence. Um have confidence and seek advice. Um, certainly in my day, you know, you never spoke to a civilian. You had almost crossed the road. You didn't, you had, good God, civilians were treacherous, idle, scruffy, says him dressed in shorts, um, ill-shaven. I mean, just civilians were appalling. They're not. Civilians are very kind, very helpful, uh, and very useful um, and they have to have confidence the veterans that they have the skills they do they really do um, to trust people 
and to ask advice mm. um, because they can do anything they want to. They really can. They've been doing it. Uh, and if you, you turn that on its head, you know, if you had said to our armed forces, right, next year, you know, there's going to be a pandemic. Well, what's a pandemic? Couldn't even spend it. You know, I remember standing on the uh, the square at Cavalry Barracks and being told the Argentinians had invaded the Falkland Islands. Well, we thought we were going to Scotland to kick them out, out, out of the Shetland Islands. Never even heard of it. Um, in the end, the Scots Guards and the Welsh Guards went. But that's what I'm talking about. They, they react um, brilliantly to any given situations. In our day, it was uh, the farmers' strike uh, when we were doing civil stuff. Theirs is the pandemic. I mean, that's a skill set. Mm -hmm. And who do the government and who do business go to when the sh it's the fan? Yeah. The military. So when you get out, you have everything. Yeah. Great words of advice there. So um, I'm going to say thank you so much for sharing what you've shared and, uh, you know, just giving us an insight of, of what you went through uh, during your time and regarding time. Thank you for that today. Um, it's a very precious piece of our lives and you've given me some of yours today. So thank you so much. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you know, and, and whether it's it's countryside running, getting out, transition, or if there's veterans out there or families struggling, for God's sake, just pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's not much that can't be solved or started with a 30-second call. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think people leave all these things way too long. Pick up the bloody phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, thank you for your service. No, thank you. I haven't heard that uh, a lot in this country. Uh, we heard it a lot when we were doing a race across America and when we started in California, we go, what's that about? <laughs> uh, and by the time we had cycled 3,136 miles uh, and six days later, we were entirely used to it and going, well, thank you very much. How kind. <laughs> so thank you very much. How kind. No problem at all. No problem at all. This has been Military Veterans Podcast, out. Hi, this is Gav. Thanks so much for listening to the end of this episode and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. But uh, I would love to just give you the insight into being able to support the show through uh, Patreon. Uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash military veterans podcast or you can follow the links on the website or even social media. And this way you can support monthly. Uh, there are a few tiers you can choose. Uh, they start at £3 a month and they go up if you were to support with £5 a month, you actually get a behind-the-scenes kind of recording, which is once the episode has been recorded with me and the veteran, then uh, we do a little bit of a chin wag, and uh, that's, actually, that's actually quite fun. So it'd be awesome if you could maybe have a listen to some of those uh, just by supporting uh, with £5 a month. But either way, uh, please uh, share the show with, with a friend or someone you know that might enjoy it. Uh, and also remember, there is the video part as well, which is over on YouTube. So thanks very much for anything that you've done with supporting or listening and uh, take care. Bye-bye.